the leader. Page 25. Saturday, the 26th of February, 1870. Tales and Sketches. A Bush Ghost Story. Have you ever seen a ghost? No? Well then, I've been more fortunate. It was not the ghost of a stately dame in rustling brocade or the spirit of a cavalier in silken trunk hose visiting the tapestry chamber of an ancient mansion. It was no perturbed spirit doomed to walk the earth in punishment for crimes committed or waiting until some unfulfilled vow should be accomplished and an end put to its midnight errantry. The ghost I saw was a most unromantic one, a ghost proclaiming a foul, unnatural murder, appearing in the solitude of the Australian bush. You may perhaps maintain that it was no ghost at all, and you're welcome to your opinion. At the time, I looked upon the apparition as a visitor from the other world. For years I've held the same view, and nothing that could be said or written could alter my conviction on the subject. I seek not to make proselytes, I only state facts. When the new Bendigo rush broke out, I was gold-buying in the district and was brought into connection with most of the traders of what is now called St. Arnott's. As my business often took me to Melbourne, the storekeepers confided their orders to me for the goods necessary for their calling. I was most often required to send up grog from Melbourne and received a liberal commission, particularly if fortunate enough to get it delivered at its destination in reasonable time. One of my trips to town, I had been favoured with a large order for spiritous liquor. The purchases were soon effected, but I had considerable difficulty in obtaining drays. At last, I had the satisfaction of seeing the goods safely off to St. Arnold's. I had been fortunate in securing three drays, belonging to one proprietor, and he himself acted in the capacity of Bullock Puncher. He seemed a steady man, and his presence was in some sort of way a guarantee that the cargo would not be broached during the trip. He was accompanied by his wife, a middle-aged woman, matter-of-fact in the extreme, and not particularly attractive. I had some conversation with her before starting, recommending her to keep a sharp eye to the grog, and had therefore had every opportunity of becoming familiar with her features. The drays departed, and I saw no more of them for about three weeks. I finished my business and left Melbourne for New Bendigo. Maribyrnong was reached by coach, the rest of the journey being performed on horseback. On reaching a creek near where the roads branch off to Avoca and St. Arnold's, I came up with my drays. They had just camped 
and the driver stated that he'd intended giving the bullocks a spell until the next morning. I had some conversation with the female, who told me that the grog was all right, and that as the roads were in good order, they would not be long after me in reaching their destination. Upon arriving at St. Arnold's, I intimated the speedy arrival of the drays, and set about my avocation of gold-buying. Days passed, and there was no intelligence of the grog. I was pestered by anxious storekeepers as to where I had last seen the drays, how many bullocks they were, if the men were honest, and a host of such-like questions to which I gave the most satisfactory answers in my power. At last, intelligence of the tardy vehicles arrived, but far different from that anticipated. Instead of the teams themselves, with the concomitants of cracking bullock whips and the usual woe-woe brandy and come-up snowball, there arrived the news that a foul diabolical murder had been committed. On the morning after I had quitted the drays at the creek, preparations were made for departure. But it was found that during the night the bullocks had strayed from the camp. The proprietor and his men started in search of the animals, leaving the woman in charge of the loaded drays. Shortly after her husband and his mates had left, she was disturbed in her occupation of collecting her bush lares and bonates by the sound of approaching horses. Presently, three horsemen pulled up about fifty yards from the camp and took a survey of the scene. Satisfied, apparently, with their investigation, they advanced towards the woman at a rapid pace, halted close to the drays, when the foremost presenting a revolver told the woman to bail up. They were all well-mounted, carried each a pair of revolvers and had their features concealed by thick black crepe. Instead of complying with the polite request, the woman with more courage than discretion attacked them with her tongue and poured out upon them a tirade of abuse. She denounced them as a lazy set of villains and told them in strong language that they ought to be ashamed of themselves for sticking up decent people instead of following a lawful occupation. Several times she was told in bush vernacular to stow her gab, but without avail, and she still continued to pour out a torrent of invectives against the bush rangers. Such, indeed, they were. As afterwards came to light, they had learned that I was about to travel from St. Arnold to Meribah with a considerable amount of gold in my possession and had determined upon a transfer of property. To while away the time, they had been sticking up travellers upon the road between Meribah and Avoca and had at last determined to wait for my appearance at the creek where they fell in with the drays. Smarting under the contumely heaped upon them by the woman, one of the men, who had hitherto not spoken, 
asked her if she were not a clear woman, and being answered in the affirmative, he presented his revolver, told the female that he would send a message to Daniel O'Connell, and fired. The shot took effect, and the courageous woman fell back wounded in the stomach. The two mates of the man who had fired the shot were loud in their denunciation of the act, called him a pitiful coward, and told him they would have nothing further to do with him. Matters were in this state when the tinkling of a bullock bell warned the bushrangers that they must seek safety in flight. They accordingly wheeled round and departed at a gallop. Scarcely were they out of sight when the husband appeared with the missing bullocks to find his wife in almost the agonies of death. She was able to recount what had happened, but could give no description of the men's features, nor of the road they had taken. One of the other bullock drivers was dispatched to Meribah for medical assistance and to communicate with the police. About evening, a doctor arrived upon the spot to find the unfortunate woman a corpse. The body was conveyed to Meribah and a coroner's inquest pronounced the verdict of murder against persons unknown. The drays were taken charge of by the police. Active search was made for the assassins who, it was thought, had taken to the Mallee. When the news reached St. Arnold's, it caused great excitement. It was the topic of conversation for a fortnight. Private parties, of which I made one, were organised to search for the murderers. The country was scoured, and detectives were employed without avail. The perpetrators of the cowardly deed could not be found, and in about three weeks the occurrence began to be no longer a subject of interest, and threatened soon to live only in the men's minds as one of the traditions of the early and lawless days of the colony. When my business was completed at New Bendigo, I found it necessary to proceed to Melbourne, and so one day, about three weeks after the event recorded above, I left that township intending to halt at Strathfillan Station and to reach Natayalik in the evening, where my friend Mac was Inspector of Police. By leaving this place at an early hour in the morning, I would be able to catch the coach that left Maribyrnong for the metropolis. On arriving at Strathfillan, I found that the family of the squatter was supplemented by two ladies, the owner's sister-in-law, and a friend, who were on a visit to the station. I arrived about lunchtime, and having partaken of the repast, was about to depart when I was pressed to stay for dinner. I consented. The afternoon passed quickly away, and I found enough to amuse me, although the game of croquet at that time had not been invented, 
Dinner passed off merrily. The squatter, for a wonder, had a good cook, and his wine was excellent. The host was witty, and the ladies were charming. After dinner, we had music and singing, and finally got upon the subject of the murdered woman. At last, I expressed a determination to depart, and was met with a pressing invitation to stop all night. It was urged that the bushrangers might be lying in wait for me. To this, I replied that it was not probable that they would venture in the district again, at all events until the affair had blown over. I moreover stated that I had taken the precaution of sending my gold to Creswick, so that it might be forwarded by the escort. To the reiterated entreaties to stop all night, I turned a deaf ear, and at about eleven o'clock my horse was brought round. Bidding adieu to my friends, I mounted my horse and rode off. Quickly I traversed the paddock, emerged through the slip paddles and struck the beaten track. The horse I was riding was young, a free-goer, and one that knew me well. I was in particularly good spirits, a little excited by the unwoted cheer and the animated conversation of the fair inmates of Strathillan. I had no care upon my mind and jogged along thinking of my trip to town. It was clear moonlight and one of those sharp frosty nights so peculiar to the months of June and July in Australia. The country I was traversing consisted of open forest of box and red gum. Ever and anon I came upon patches of dead timber, the withered branches of which took all sorts of fantastic shapes and looked like weird creatures disporting themselves in the moonlight. Now I rode across some small plain encircled by a belt of timber, and then again once more into the forest. I had not proceeded far when I noticed that I was off the track, and I knew by the sound that I was travelling upon turf. A slight deviation put me right, but in an incredibly short time, I perceived that once more I was on the grass. Somewhat annoyed, I gave my horse a sharp cut or two with the whip, took him by the head, and put him on the beaten road. The animal was, however, disinclined to keep the track, and it required all of my attention to prevent him getting into the bush. He now began to show signs of distress, and instead of going freely, it needed frequent applications of the spur to keep him in a canter. At last, he propped suddenly and stood staring into vacancy with distended neck and outstretched forelegs. He had broken out into a profuse sweat, breathed hard, and showed unmistakable signs of fear. Looking ahead, I saw a strange light, too dim for a fire, and more like the reflex of a limelight thrown onto a stage. My first thought was that it was some sort of mirage, 
but a few moments' consideration told me that could not be the case, as it was too close. I coaxed my unwilling steed, and after much labour encouraged him to proceed towards the light. It became no brighter, and as I approached, no cause for the curious effect became apparent. On looking to the right, I perceived what I made out to be three loaded drays to which no bullocks were attached, and under a tree near the farthest, I distinctly saw the figure of a woman standing and apparently looking in my direction. At once it flashed upon me that I was near the place where the bullock driver's wife had been murdered. To the left I saw the outline of the creek, which, though dry in summer, consisted at this time of the year in a chain of waterholes. I must own that I felt somewhat uncomfortable. The horse refused to move, so I dismounted, took the reins over his head, and walked toward the tree followed by the animal. When about ten yards off, I stopped, and taking a steady look, became convinced that it was the woman with whom I spoke on two occasions, and who had been reported as dead. I called out, but received no answer, then tried to whistle, Il Segreto, but broke down miserably in the first bar. The horse was now in a frightful state of fear. He trembled in every limb and refused to move. I unwound the halter that was twisted around his neck, hitched him to a tree, and then, as if driven by a sudden impulse, I advanced towards the woman. When close enough, I saw that there was a fixity of the eye and a rigidity of the limbs that spoke of death. I endeavoured to place my hand upon her shoulder, but although the figure remained before me, my hand encountered no obstruction. In fact, it seemed to sink into the woman's body. I stepped forward at pace and found that I'd literally walk through the figure. Still, it stood there pale and immovable as a wax figure. Casting my eyes over her head, I saw another sight. Amongst the trees I discerned the dim outline of a horse, then the limbs of a rider, and lastly, a pair of eyes gleaming upon me through some black object. At once the limelight-like brightness fell upon those eyes, and I saw the head of a man whose features were concealed with a black veil, in which two holes were cut for the purposes of vision. The crepe came down as far as the point of the nose, and, although the upper part of the face was hidden, I distinctly saw that the man had a hare lip. At this moment, the female figure under the tree raised her arm and pointed in the direction of Maldon, and then woman, hair-lipped man, drays and limelight all vanished. And I found myself standing in the middle of the bush, 
my horse tied to a tree, standing with a drooping head and quivering flanks. As soon as the strange scene had vanished, the horse seemed to recover immediately and began cropping the grass near him. I sprang upon his back, stirred his courage with the steel, and never drew rein until I reached Mac's quarters at Natty Yalak. He had long retired to rest, but the door was quickly opened and Mac, in dishabble, came to meet me, asking in rather forcible language what I meant by dropping in at that ungodly hour. He soon saw, however, that something uncommon had happened, and restrained from further observations. We went into his room, and under the soothing influence of Hennessy and a pipe of Barrett's twist, I told him my adventure, adding that it must have been my imagination. Imagination be hanged, said Mac. It was a warning. I'll go bail that the murdering villains are hanging about Malden. It was agreed that a party of police should be sent out to reconnoitre, that I should go to town, dispatch my business, and return to join Mac in the pursuit of the bushrangers. Next morning I left for Maribra, took coach to Melbourne, transacted my business, and within the week was back at Mac's quarters. He had received no news from his emissaries, but we determined to set out on our expedition. We rode over to Meribra and spent two or three days reconnoitring the district without seeing anything of our gentlemen. On the third day, one of the police stated that he had discovered three men living in an isolated hut about twelve miles from the township. He had made inquiries, had ascertained that the nearest neighbours believed the hut to be empty, and further added that a teamster had told him that he had seen three horses hobbled not far from the shanty that night about ten o'clock. Mac, myself and four troopers wended our way to the hut. When about one hundred yards from the place we dismounted, left the horses in charge of one man and drew near. A light was visible through the slabs, but when we were some twenty yards off, it was suddenly extinguished. We reached the hut and waited patiently for some time. Suddenly, there was a noise within, as of someone putting wood on the fire, followed by the attempt to blow the almost extinct embers into a flame. Suddenly, a ruddy glow came through the chinks, a sign that the dry wood had caught. I looked through the opening. On the floor were a couple of forms rolled up in blankets. Opposite to me, with his elbows on a table and his head in his hands, sat a third man. His face was partially concealed, but I saw he had a hair lip. I pointed this out to Mac, who whispered, That's our man. Retiring a little, our plan of action was quickly formed. Two policemen to stand guard outside while Mac 
followed by the other constable and myself, determined to rush the door. The two constables were placed about 10 yards from the door. With their carbines to their shoulders, Mac, with a revolver in hand, dashed at the door, which gave way like brown paper. And burst into the hut, followed by myself and the third constable. The two figures sprang from the ground. The man at the table removed his hands from his face and stared vacantly at the intruders. Not the slightest opposition was offered, and the three were handcuffed without difficulty. We remained there all night, and early in the morning started for Meribra, where we arrived without adventure, and gave up the prisoners to the authorities. They were tried, found guilty, and executed. Before they were launched into eternity, the actual murderer confessed his crime, and the others, though denying their guilt on that occasion, confessed to having more than once spilled human blood. The story is told. You may think, reader, that what I saw on that moonlight night in the forest was the effect of excited imagination. Or you may perhaps be still more uncharitable. But it cannot be contested that the incidents attendant upon my ride from Strathfilan to Natty Yallock led to the speedy arrest and punishment of the murderers of the bullet driver's wife. An Australian Ghost Story by MP, published in the Evening Journal, Saturday the 29th of December, 1888. Old Thompson is surely well known everywhere. He is such a very hospitable old gentleman and has such a genial manner and such a marvellous faculty for yarning that I am not inclined to think kindly of the man who has partaken of the old gentleman's hospitality for even one evening and yet does not love him. His real name, as everyone knows, is James Thompson Esquire JP, proprietor of Moomba Cattle Station. The old gentleman assumes that tremendous title whenever he buttons himself in a stiff frock coat and takes his seat on the bench of the local court with such a severe frown that his jolly old red face seems transformed into a very implacable and apoplectic effigy of justice. But our friend is not interesting in that character, and perhaps we had better take a turn outside the courthouse while he tries two important cases, and we may be sure he will be lenient with the man for stealing chickens and the old lady with the high complexion for making away with some of her neighbours' clothes. Old Thompson is never very severe. It is contrary to his warm-hearted nature to do otherwise than temper justice with mercy. Old Thompson is one of the very oldest inhabitants. In fact, some people assert that he is the oldest inhabitant, but that vexed question has never been satisfactorily determined. At any rate, 
He provides vastly entertaining when you manage to draw him out about the old days. The old man would seat himself beside the fireplace, careless whether a fire burnt there or not, with his head thrown back and a particularly disreputable cutty pipe between his lips and spin yarns by the hour. And wonderful yarns they were sometimes. He had an excellent memory, a keen sense of humour and a manner of relating his tales that held you an interested listener from first to last. Or, as Dick Turpin, as we had christened the horsey young man of the township, once remarked, from post to finish. By profession, I am a commercial traveller, and as I have often spent a pleasant evening at Moomba, Mr Thompson and I are intimate friends. My host was one of the most hospitable of men, and the surest way to offend him would be to pass his gate after nightfall, which, by the way, I never did. I never knew you had a graveyard so close to the house until tonight, I said as we sat quietly smoking in his snuggery one evening after dinner. You mean the graveyard on the sand hill? queried the old man, giving me a queer look from his twinkling little eyes. Ah, yes, but I have a curious yarn about that place. I filled my pipe afresh, settled down to listen. Do you believe in ghosts? asked old Thompson abruptly. You don't. No, I see you don't. Never met a commercial traveller who did. Well, neither did I until one day, or rather night, I had an experience and then... (laughs) And the old gentleman laughed until I was obliged to pat him on the back to prevent him from choking. That grave, continued the old man in a saddened tone, is the last resting place of a trooper who fell about 25 years ago while engaged with three others in defending this house, or rather the hut then standing where this house is now built, from bushrangers. It is a long and rather painful story, but I think I had better tell you and then you will be better able to understand our fears about that ghost. I lived humbly in those days, in a small slab hut with two station hands, for we were pioneering and the station was only half formed. The country was wild and unsettled at that time. There were not a half dozen settlers within cooey of us as there are now, and not a township nearer than 75 miles. One evening, as I was turning in, I happened to glance through the little window when I caught the gleam of what seemed like a spear or tomahawk in the bright moonlight. It did not take us long to bar the window with stout red gum sleepers, for the blacks were troublesome in those days and they often thought less of spearing one of the invading whites than a sheep. We were such muscular, hard-working fellows that the savages rightly regarded us as inedible. We were so busy with our preparations for defence that the strangers had halted at our door before they were perceived. They were not blacks, as we had imagined, but four swarthy troopers whose dusty uniform and knocked-up horses gave signs of rather hard riding. Their business was soon told. There were bushrangers about. About a week ago, three men had broken jail, seized all the arms, ammunition and provisions they could carry from the general store in the township and taken to the bush. 
And, concluded the sergeant cheerfully, they are, we think, somewhere in your neighbourhood. Before tomorrow evening, we hope to give the vagabonds a lesson. You had better be fixing up the hut, said the man stroking his chin, while by your leave we'll stow the mokes in that lean-to at the back. Perhaps, if we have luck, they may pay us a visit. It was well that we had barricaded the doors and windows with stout red gum slabs and cleaned the cobwebbed loopholes in the walls. Just as the glorious summer moon was beginning to pale before the uncertain light of morning, a man knocked at the door of the hut demanding admission. He described himself as a benighted swagman, but we knew better. Through the loopholes, we saw him nervously fingering the trigger of his gun while two men peered anxiously over a huge log about 25 yards distant. We let the fellow in, however, when he promptly aimed his gun at the pit of my stomach and roared, Bail up! in his fiercest bush-ranging tones. To his surprise, we did nothing of the sort. In an instant, his gun was knocked from his hand and the stern muzzles of four rifles smiled grimly upon him. It's no go, said the sergeant calmly. The man glanced despairingly at the barred windows, the four uniformed troopers and the four threatening rifles and concluded it wasn't. I cave, but I don't split on my pals. I swings first, he muttered grimly. The two worthies behind the log were evidently perplexed at their companion's disappearance. Presently, one man quitted ambush and cautiously approached the hut. His footsteps were clearly audible even as he crept carefully over the hard ground. A strange change seemed to have overtaken our captive. He was battling with some emotion. His face was pale and great beads of perspiration started from his brow. Suddenly... A harsh smile of evil triumph crept across his face and before any of us could guess his intention, he had placed his mouth at one of the loopholes and given vent to a loud yell to warn his comrades of the danger. For a second, the trooper's finger trembled on the trigger. Then he coolly reversed his rifle and brought the weapon down on the man's head with an awful thud. The poor wretch fell like an ox. The two miscreants outside speedily prepared to decamp until arrested by a volley from the hut. This demonstration evidently surprised them for they fell flat behind the friendly log for a second or two and then began to return our fire in an irregular manner which only served to show how badly they were armed. Their powder must have been very bad for at 25 yards distance, their buckshot charges hardly made any impression on the red gum sleepers, and some pellets we afterwards picked out from the door were hardly embedded in the wood. The men gradually retreated under cover of the trees, returning our fire in a desultory fashion, until one of them lurched forward and fell on his face with a deep groan. The other bent beside him for a second and then rising and throwing up his arms in the very abandonment of despair, dashed off wildly into the bush. Unmindful of the unconscious man on the floor, everyone inside the hut rushed after the fugitive, who was captured after a half-hour's exciting chase. The fallen man was quite dead, and we were carrying the corpse towards the hut, while the captured outlaw followed in possession of two troopers in the rear, 
a strange thing happened. As we neared the hut, the door opened slowly and a man staggered into the open. The sun was just rising and it cast one long, slanting, blood-red ray across the man's face, which, pale as marble, was rendered ghastly, hideous, by a thin red stream which trickled sluggishly from his dark hair and down his pallid forehead. The bloodshot eyes of the man wandered from us to the blood-red rising sun and back again in an unmeaning stare. Then he bent his haggard eyes to the ground and saw a rifle at his feet. For a moment, he steadied himself by the doorpost, then grasping the weapon with trembling hands, took deliberate aim at the trooper rushing towards him. There was a momentary pause and a man staggered forward and fell. It was the trooper who had clubbed him. We buried that poor fellow in the graveyard yonder, said the old man slowly. Then he paused, knocked the ashes from his pipe, and gazed reflectively into the fire. But that's only half the story, said the old man presently. The other half is more cheerful. He filled his pipe very deliberately before continuing struck a match on the mantelpiece edge and, after pulling away for several moments in quiet enjoyment, again remarked reflectively, Yes, the other half is more cheerful, much more cheerful. It's a ghost story, and ghost stories are always cheerful when they are told the right way. Then he stretched out his fat legs threw back his head until his jolly red face was upturned to the ceiling and, fixing his eye on a large fly resting there, resumed in a more cheery tone. It was about ten years ago. I remember I had a lot of men in the house from all the stations round about. They had come to assist at a kangaroo run. We killed about 1,500 kangs, all told, and buried them all in the cultivation paddock. Fine crop they made. And since then, a live kangaroo has never been seen inside the paddock, although before they used to eat half the crop. There are a lot of possums in the gums down by the river, and the men wanted amusing, so I set them on the possums. We made up a party of about a dozen, and off we went. It was a glorious moonlight night, and the shooting was excellent. We made a splendid bag. The moon was dipping low in the west as we started for home by a different shack. As we strode along the road, I remarked that we should have to pass the trooper's grave. And then somehow the talk turned to ghosts. I have a weakness for ghost yarns, as you perhaps know, and I believe I told them some particularly blood-curdling stories, such as would make the average mortal's flesh creep. One or two of the party did feel a bit nervous as they confessed afterwards and when a white rabbit scuttled across the road and disappeared like magic into a thick patch of shade, Betts, the bank clerk of the township, he's now manager, almost jumped out of his smart shooting suit in fright and discharged his gun somewhere in the direction of the moon, although he afterwards obstinately declared that he had fired at the rabbit. (laughs) 
Probably, he added with a feeble attempt at a smile. You fellows were so frightened that you made a mistake. Betty is downright scared, said a young fellow, a super on one of the adjoining stations, as soon as the frightened rabbit had scuttled away unhurt into the brushwood. Humbug, said Betts stoutly. (laughs) Proof, laughed back the young man. Well, said Mr Betts after a pause, the (coughs) graveyard, well, graveyards, you know, are, you know, sometimes considered the abodes of, of ghosts. But I don't believe in ghosts, all humbug. And to show you what I think, I am willing to walk past that graveyard alone. Bet you don't, said the super promptly. A pound? Yes, it's a wager, said Betts. And he strode forward nervously towards the fatal spot. Mind you, he shouted back in a shaky voice. I shan't put up with any personating nonsense. If anyone comes fooling around in a sheet, I'll dust him. And he shook his gun bravely. If you can hit him, shouted back the super. But Betts was not what you would call a dead shot, although it was rumoured that he once hit a barn by discharging his gun inside. Betts is in an awful funk, remarked somebody critically as that gentleman approached the graveyard at a quick shaky walk. Suddenly, Betts stopped. He was nearly a hundred yards ahead of us, but we imagined his knees shook. Hurrying forward, we soon saw what had frightened him, and it made the boldest amongst us feel creepy and uncomfortable. A horrid, white thing with flaming eyes and coal-black horns rose slowly from the grave as a vampire might and hovered like a vulture over the low mound. Slowly, the awful thing floated from side to side, now sinking, now rising slowly, and ever hovering about the same spot. It was awful. Poor Betts, frozen with chill terror, clung helplessly to a tree, his eyeballs starting, his hair on end. We felt horror-stricken, rooted to the spot. But even then, I caught myself asking mentally if horns were not a decided novelty in ghosts and whether green eyes did not add greatly to the effect. So prone is the human mind to frivolity even at the most supreme moment. Presently... The apparition groaned a deep, rumbling, horrid groan that chilled the very marrow in our bones. The effect was magical. Betts, no longer petrified, shinnied up the tree with the agility of a blackfellow, while several of the party, casting appearances to the winds, dashed off wildly down the road. The rest stood firm. Scarcely conscious of action, I raised my gun and discharged both barrels at the spectre. The effect was awful. With a hideous roar that even the Prince of Darkness himself might envy, the apparition turned and crashed wildly through the scrub. My mind misgave me. Ghosts are not made of the solid stuff of the object I had hit, and I went to bed wondering what I had shot. Next morning... There was a loud knock at my door at about six. 
and then the mystery was revealed. I had shot my prize Hereford bull. The animal had broken the graveyard fence and after feeding on the long grass within, camped on the mound of the trooper's grave. Alarmed by our approach, the animal had raised his blazed face and the setting moon catching the animal's eyes had transformed them terribly. The rest of the animal's red body was in darkness, therefore invisible. The station hand who roused me had found Taurus galloping madly about his paddock, half blinded by two charges of shot in his face. And so that ghost was laid. But the process was expensive, for the bull had to be destroyed. That midnight adventure cost me 100 guineas. Wednesday, the 28th of October, 1885. The South Burke and Mornington Journal. One Christmas... I received an invitation to stay a few weeks at a schoolfellow's farm up in the north of Gippsland. So I packed up my traps with alacrity and in less than 12 hours presented myself at Jack Draper's farm. While seated at tea that night and making myself thoroughly at home, I noticed a look of care on the face of my friend quite foreign to his jovial nature. On my inquiring the cause, he pointed out of the window opening towards the mountains, at the foot of which Tanderbore was situated, a remarkably lonely and isolated position, to a hut which had an appearance of desolation and disuse about it, standing alone in the field at some distance from the house and rapidly growing dim in the increasing twilight. "'That hut is the bane of my existence, Will,' he said." You know, I have not long taken Tanderbore, and I'm afraid I shall have to leave it. Why? What's the matter with the hut? I inquired. It's... It looks a good enough sort of place, except that its ventilation is on rather too expensive a scale, and that it wants a new roof and the sides renewed. Ha! You may laugh, young man. Please pass the bread. But I'm hanged if I can. There's some ghastly story of the occupant of that hut having been murdered by a former owner of Tanderbore, and it's never been opened since then. I have the key, but it's no use to me, for I wouldn't go inside. Why? Jack, uh, another cup of tea, please. You're surely not superstitious. No, he returned. But the place is said to be haunted, and what I have seen is calculated to make me so. Sometimes, in the darkness of a still, clear night, the most appalling yells and shrieks comes from that hut. Once, I peeped in through the chinks of the door, determined to investigate the matter. I saw in one corner of the hut a great white figure with two eyes gleaming through the gloom. It uttered some unearthly words, gave a scream, and I cleared. Now, none of my fellows, and they're pretty hardy, will go near the place after nightfall for love of money. It's getting perfectly unbearable. 
I said it was very strange, but expressed utter disbelief in any ghost connivance, upon which he informed me that it had been quiet for some nights, and so I might hear it that night or the next. When it had grown dark and the tea things were cleared away, we left the window open and sat down to a game of draughts. I was just about to move into the third game when softened by the distance, but distinct and clear, came a shrill, sharp cry from the direction of the hut, which so startled me that I involuntarily tipped the board over and scattered the men all over the floor. What did I tell you? said Jack, with the pride of a professional showman who has a real-life ghost to exhibit to his visitors. I ran to the window and listened, but heard no more. Drafts were now out of the question, and for the rest of the evening I sat thoughtful and silent. When bedtime arrived, I considerably startled my friend by coolly saying, Jack, I'm going to sleep in the hut tonight. You are what? said Jack with an aspect of horror. I'm going to sleep in the hut tonight, I repeated. Well, of all the extraordinary... Oh, I say, you know, are you stark mad? No, I answered. I'm in my proper senses, or I shouldn't think of such a thing. After a long time of vain discussion, Jack gave in, remarking sotto voce that he supposed infants and maniacs had to have their own way, and we sallied forth, he with one half of the bedding and a lantern, I with the other half, a thick stick and a ball of twine, for I had my own ideas regarding the ghost. The news of my somewhat quixotic intention had spread through the house and quite a number of farmhands had gathered in the porch to see me off. At a little distance from the hut, I took the bundle which my friend had been carrying, also the lantern and the key, and forbade anyone coming further with me and after trying once more to dissuade me from my purpose and finding it as useless as before... Jack bade me a sorrowful good night, with the comforting assurance that he never expected to see me alive again. He saw me enter and closed the door and then hurriedly returned to the house. I will now continue the story with Jack's own words in detailing the denouement to a party of friends some days after. After spending, says Jack, a restless and almost sleepless night, arose with early dawn and by dint of great persuasion induced some of the hands to accompany me to the hut where I fully expected to see my friend stretched dead with fright. I advanced to the door, threw it open and there Jack was wont to explain with a burst of astonishment there he lay on his mattress sound asleep and snoring as if he had been in his own bed at home instead of in a worm-eaten, ghost-haunted hut. An old grey cockatoo, firmly fastened by a cord tied round his leg to the bar of the chair, 
was meditating on one leg with an appearance of great shamefacedness had been found in the position of dishonourable captivity and occasionally threw out some disconnected remarks relative to Polly requiring his morning repast and pop goes the weasel as if there were extenuating circumstances for his having been circumvented. While I gazed in mystified surprise, Will woke and yawningly inquired, Wash time, until he became sufficiently awake to comprehend his situation and to remember the adventures of the night. When he sat up and pointing to the bird and directing my attention at the same time to a sheet, which, though yellow with age and yet still retaining some of its pristine whiteness, hung from a rafter in the corner of the hut. There, he said, there's your ghost. This bird was the great pet of his murdered master, and on his death nightly returned through a hole in the roof of the place which had been his home. His appearance, combined with the long-draped sheet above which he perched, gave rise to the supposition that it was a ghost while his screams and the utterance of the few words he had learned to say were taken for the mutterings of a being from the netherworld. Jack, who had originally... Jack, who was originally a town mouse until he purchased Tanderbore from a fancied liking for farming, knew comparatively nothing of bush life, birds, etc., and was, therefore more easily deceived than I, my life having been spent in the country until I was compelled to change it for an existence in the metropolis. On first hearing of the ghost, I had my suspicions, but forbore to mention them till able to convert them into certainties. Having retired to my sleeping apartment, I found the bird asleep, thus enabling me to capture it, hold it as a hostage, and obtain a night's rest. Quite contrary to all expectation and prophecy. Many a pleasant day I spent at Tandabore after this, and the owner has no idea of disposing it now. On a stand next to the fire in winter, and in the porch in the sunny summer, reposing in his old age, perches the terrible ghost of former days. You've been listening to the To Be Continued podcast from the Australian National University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. 